Hello, and welcome to Reading McCarthy. Reading McCarthy is a podcast devoted to the consideration and discussion of the works of one of our greatest American writers, Cormac McCarthy. Each episode will call upon different well-known Cormacian readers and scholars to help us explore different works and various essential aspects of McCarthy's writing. My name is Scott Yarbrough, and I'll be your host for these forays into the deep wilds, dark groves, back alleys, and badlands of Cormac McCarthy. Our guest today was the first guest on the first podcast, and so Reading McCarthy is proud to welcome back Dr. Stephen Fry. Steve Fry is professor and chair of English at California State University, Bakersfield, and president of the Cormac McCarthy Society. He is the author of Understanding Cormac McCarthy from the University of South Carolina Press and editor of the Cambridge Companion to Cormac McCarthy and Cambridge University Press's Cormac McCarthy in Context. His book, Unguessed Kinships, Naturalism and Geography of Hope in Cormac McCarthy, is near completion. He has written numerous journal articles on Cormac McCarthy and other authors of the American Romantic tradition. Additionally, he is the author of the recently published novel, Dogwood Crossing, which I highly recommend. Steve, welcome back to the podcast. Well, thank you, Scott. I'm happy to be back again. I appreciate you having me. Now, you did not start, and we discussed this a little bit in the first one, but given that today our focus is going to be on the influence of Herman Melville on McCarthy and the confluence of their two bodies of work, uh, it bears repeating, you didn't, you weren't born into your professorship as an automatic Cormac McCarthy scholar. In fact, there probably were no Cormac McCarthy scholars when you started as professor. You started as an American Renaissance specialist, right? Well, that's right. I suppose depending upon when you want to identify the starting point. Um, when I did my master's degree here in, in, at a California State University, um, I actually did a thesis on Fitzgerald. Um, and I dealt with some of the religious elements in Fitzgerald and ah. his Catholicism. But when I went on to my PhD program, you're absolutely right. I, I, I switched and moved backward and, and did my exams and my dissertation uh, in the American Renaissance and dealt directly with Melville in, in, that, in that context. Yeah. So that, that was my trajectory and then evolved later. Yeah. Into, into McCarthy. And of all the Melville works, what is the one that has been most central to your interest? I feel like it's almost a given that it's Moby Dick, but then there are probably so many people who write so much about Moby Dick. It might be that you know, Taipei or Red Jacket or some of those bring in scholars in a, coming from a different direction. Well, yeah, I mean, for me, it is Moby Dick. And of course, for, for many of us, a touchstone for uh, literary scholars in American literature without question. But no, it is true that, that Melville has wrote a number of works that appeal to different sensibilities. Uh, and certainly his earlier work before Moby Dick, his travel narratives and his early novels uh, have a great appeal, especially for those in the 19th century. And, you know, and even today, though, uh, and then his later work after Moby Dick works like The Confidence Man, works like Pierre or The Ambiguities and some of his poetry and particularly Billy Budd are notable. So, you know, Melville is a, as, a, as an author is almost is one of those authors that's almost obscured by his greatest work. Right. And that's a bit unfortunate, I think. But yeah, again, there's just there's just no underestimating, it seems to me, Moby Dick. And I, I may overstate the case a little bit, I suppose, but I think most would agree with me. And so how did studying Moby Dick lead you to Cormac McCarthy? Oh, yeah, that's, that's an interesting one. It, kind of in, in a couple of ways. One, Moby Dick is grounded in the American Renaissance. 
it's in, I believe it is the, the fossil whale chapter, right, of, of Moby Dick. It's actually Melville who says, and I'll go ahead and quote him. He says, to produce a mighty book, you must choose a mighty theme. No great enduring volume can ever be written on the fleet, though many there be who have tried it. <laughs> and if we think about McCarthy, right, later on, he talks uh, about, about literature and he looks at some writers and calls them strange. He talks about Henry right. James and Marcel Proust in that way. But really, he says, you know, I think it's in the Woodward interview, right, that he says that literature has to be about life and death. Right. Right. And you can sort of see that parallel, this idea of the mighty theme and the idea of life and death. What binds them there is that they're both participating in the romance tradition. Now, there's that's a contested category amongst many contemporary scholars. But I think good archival research reveals that the distinction between the novel and the romance that was first articulated by Richard Chase in the 1950s hmm. or codified by Chase in the 1950s, that that distinction, the archives pretty much reveal that that distinction was pretty darn stable in the early 19th century. You know, McCarthy maintains that stability. Huh. And without, without belaboring the point too much, really, the, it's that branch of the romance that is overtly philosophical right. in orientation as distinct from what we might call the, the novels of dense social texture. So my orientation toward Melville drew me to McCarthy because of that. But also I had, had, I had a parallel interest that was evolving in the time in the literature of the American West. And that was what initially drew me to McCarthy. And then it really, you know, I mean, I mean, once hooked, I was hooked partly because of my orientation in early American literature, the American Renaissance and Melville. You know, I think you've just educated me a little bit. When I th think of his dislike for Henry James, I, it reminds me of Hemingway, who had a bit of dislike for him, although Hemingway took some things from Henry James. So, you know, you could argue the iceberg theory really mm. starts with James, of, of all writers coming before, is also funneled through Chekhov and a, a few writers like that as well. But when you said uh, books of dense social texture and the kind of extreme focused in realism where every little nuanced element is incredibly significant. And I, I think of the quote from the novella Daisy Miller, where Winterborn is hearing about how right. The, right. the social construction of New York City, and it, it just seemed to him, you know, singularly oppressive, the minute hierarchies right. of that city. Right. You're right. Nothing could be further from McCarthy's interest than that. So I think I tend to think of the aesthetic extreme precision of Henry James, and you're, if you're thinking, you know, who are the 20th century writers who follow Henry James? You're thinking of Jonathan Franzen, mm -hmm. and you're thinking of John Updike, where it's all about the precise, perfectly polished, calculated line. And I'm not really thinking about density because neither Updike nor Franzen is particularly dense or complicated. And McCarthy is dense or complicated, but there's a a snap and a a frisson and an energy to his writing that you find in Faulkner and Hemingway and in Melville. Right. And even in some Edith Fortin, who's in a same zip code artistically as Henry James, there is just a little more energy to her writing, I think, than Henry James. And so that, that whole notion of engagement in the philosophical elements of the romantic tradition is not something I've thought of before. So that's really interesting, Steve. Yeah. You know, I, and I find myself, I, you know, it, it, it's a personal thing, but I, you know, I don't 
I have never found myself all that drawn to James, though I don't find it strange. I just find it sort of different. And one of the things that's fascinating about James is the way in which intense and highly layered human psychology is deeply co-implicated with social context. Right. In a way that the Melvilles and the McCarthys place those same psychologies in Melville's memorial unremembering sea, right? This place of utter uh, of, of isolation or relative isolation. And I think that's that's a distinguishing feature. And I think that that's the psyche in, in out in the cosmos. In in Melville's case, the cosmos as is figured by the vast open sea, of course, McCarthy is conceptualizes it differently, but often we find ourselves in these desert spaces, right? Or these deep wooded spaces right. that are are again placing these characters in this relative isolation. Yeah. And you never really meet a character in a James novel you couldn't meet in real life, with the possible exception of the governess from Turn of the Screw and maybe the right. the duplicate from Is that the Turn of the Screw? Well Turn of the Screw is definitely you have to read that to psychological aspect. Right. Right. The Jolly Corner actually is the title, right? Where the guy is looking for his double right. and his right. doppelganger. But with those exceptions, every Henry James character you could meet in real life. And one always prays that he'll never meet the judge in real life, although presumably some of his other characters you could. So tell us a little bit just about Melville's biography. And you mentioned Moby Dick and maybe kind of a little bit more about his career up to Moby Dick and then post Moby Dick. Right. Well, you know, the thing about uh, uh, Melville, of course, came from, uh, was born in 1819, and he came from a relatively prominent or well-to-do New York family. Lots of relatives that were, were well-connected even generations you know, before. And his father was a businessman, but uh, a failed businessman, ultimately. And he died when Melville was relatively young, in his early, in his, in his early teens. Uh, and failed in business right around the same time. But Melville was, in, in the 19th century, of course, uh, well-educated in primary schools and uh, right up on, you know, into his late teens. Didn't go to college, but at the same time, you know, again, was well-educated. He worked for a time as a clerk, uh, and he worked for a time as a school teacher, and he even served in the merchant service uh, where he, he traveled to Liverpool. Yes. And, and spent some time there. Ultimately, he signed on board the whaler Akushnet and traveled to the South Seas. And at one point in time, under a kind of a, a very cruel captain, we're, we're told, or we, we can best extrapolate, with, with a friend of his, Tobias Green, he jumped ship, really deserted, ah. and spent some time on the type on Taiki, an island. And Many of the people on that island practiced cannibalism. Right. So he really did sort of live among the cannibals in that way. Eventually, you know, made his way to Hawaii and, and finally made his way back home. But, you know, I recall when I was in graduate school, when I was first really taught Moby Dick, one of my professors, Bob Lamb, was talking about him. He said, you know, you look at this bearded figure on a wall and you really want to isolate him in your consciousness, right? You really want to think of him as this kind of obscure almost academic figure. Sure. But in fact, when he returned, he began writing very popular. His two, Taipei and Omu, were, were his two travel narratives that are highly fictionalized. And then later, Redburn and White Jacket. And he was immensely popular. Which I merged into Red Jacket, and that's if you yeah. buy the two-volume set. 
earlier. That's all right. <laughs> and I've read one that was not the other, so maybe I thought I'd read both. I don't know. Right, right. But actually, early in his writing career, shortly after he returned from his sojourn in the South Seas, one biographer actually called him America's first literary sex symbol. Huh. And the idea was that he was a guy out there that was sort of frolicking with the natives, right, in these exotic places. And so there was this interesting turn after a while, after he wrote these very popular novels and narratives, that he started to turn with Mardi and enter into sort of philosophical and religious questions, extended allegory, etc. And he, of course, really, really bit the apple with Moby Dick. Right. And sort of lost his audience, very much lost his audience. Moby Dick was largely a failure with the critics as with the audience for a variety of reasons we may talk about. After that, he wrote a couple more novels. Uh, he was prominent enough in, in, uh, in his sort of social status that he got a political appointment as a customs inspector, continued to write, wrote a long poem, Clarel, uh, wrote uh, some Civil War poetry, some lyric poetry. And so he continued with, with his writing life, but mostly self-published. And I would say he died in what we might call a kind of comfortable obscurity. Sure. And then later, it was maybe 30 years, it was really only after the birth of English right. departments. You know, we're craving difficult works to study that Moby Dick reemerges and people start thinking about is the sort of transformation genre and the metafictional way of, of doing the novel that made him much more appealing to, to people. And it, it is almost impossible to consider American literature now and not see how central Moby Dick is to its evolution. And I think it's pretty safe to say without Moby Dick, perhaps we don't have Blood Meridian mm. yet to think that it, the book sold almost no copies and vanished without a tra I guess it's more popular in England than over here. Right. That's published as the whale. That's than, true. In England. It's just astounding to think that, although, you know, you have to remember when, when William Faulkner wins the Nobel prize in 1949, none of his books were in print. Yeah. Except for sanctuary is one that's ostensibly a crime novel, though definitely a very literary Southern take on a crime novel as well. Isn't that striking? Yeah. 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 So, uh, uh, which of McCarthy's works? Now, I just mentioned Blood and Meridian. So, if we think of Blood and Meridian and then others, what works do you see Melville's influences most appearing or most prevalent? Well, let me account for, for Blood and Meridian, you know, a, a little bit in that context, but move beyond it if if that works. The idea is, I, I think that what we see in Blood and Meridian are some obvious illusions, right? The judge, bald and cold, white, is an allusion to the whale. Um, some some critics have actually talked about the judge being an allusion to to Ahab. I think that's dead wrong. Huh. In fact, his judge is way the judge is way too measured in his articulation, way too controlled, way too intentional in a way that that Ahab is not. The illusion for the judge, the judge is an allusion to the whale without without doubt in, in my view. Now, I guess the one connection you can make between Ahab and the judge is the speechifying. On the other hand, they both do tend to assume the rhetorical pulpit and hold forth right. a bit. And in that sense, maybe they're, they're akin. But I, I definitely see where you're coming from. It's very interesting. Yeah, I, I think so. That's a, that's a fair point. And in many ways, I would almost, uh, you know, I would almost suggest that they're both, they both sort of echo a certain kind of totalitarian impulse. Huh. I think Ahab even more so. Definitely. Right. Uh, yeah. But, and also Ishmael, the Ishmael figure, remember we have the, famous, probably the most famous line in American literature, call me Ishmael. And one of the things we always have to remember is that he says, call me Ishmael. He doesn't say my name. 
yes. position. So he wants us to understand him as that spiritual wanderer yes. that is in many ways nameless and iconic. And I think that the namelessness of the kid and the fact that he sort of disappears midway through the narrative and then reappears ultimately is the same kind of trajectory that we see with Ishmael. Uh, we're, we're meant to see him more as a kind of, uh, not exactly a cipher, but a person, a persona that we as reader can occupy as well. Right, an observer who relates the facts. I alone am escaped to tell thee. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. As you know, I have a, another role on another podcast, and we recently did Moby Dick. Yeah. And in that one, one of the things we talked about is Melville's so comfortable playing with points of view. So he really, there's kind of a pre-modernism going on in Moby Dick, where there's clearly some chapters that are yeah. observed and narrated by Ishmael. And then there are some that are more or less third person, where Ishmael is kind of the author figure, or, it, or really maybe it's yeah. just Melville's narrator, the implied author, whomever. And then there's uh, one or two chapters that are told in dramatic form. Yeah. It's very unique and interesting. And you can see its influence on Ulysses by Joyce, which I think is very clearly following that same approach based on Moby Dick as well. Yeah, no, that's really true. And I think that's part of the problem with the reception of Moby Dick. And when I talk to people, oftentimes students, about Moby Dick, what I will say, I often work very, very hard not to even call it a novel. Ah. And I often, uh, and, and I, I'll slip in the context and then refer to the novel. But in that context, really what I want to, what I like to say about Moby Dick, and this has some application in McCarthy, and that is that it is a book with a novel in it, but it has a sermon, it has a short story, it has uh, any number of philosophical treatises, any number of directly constituted really scientific treatises, what they used to call natural philosophy. There's just so many genres and he breaks and blends genre right. in various kinds of ways. And I, I don't see McCarthy doing that in precisely the same way, but I do see echoes of it, particularly in, in Blood Meridian. Blood Meridian is you know all the epigram, all, all the the I don't know what you call them, but the the little epigrammatic statements at the beginning of chapters. Right. Those are drawn from the genre of the 19th century travel there. Right. He is very, very explicit. That is, McCarthy is very, very explicit about saying, this is a kind of travel narrative. Huh. And then he gives us a novel at the same time. But that very practice, even the, even the spaces in between the little epigrammatic statements right. are, in fact, the way the travel narrative was constituted. Well, and the font and the layout is, is straight yeah. out. Of, and also the dime, the dime novels that I think yeah. he's... Yeah. Toying with a little bit as well. Yeah. So what I was leading to a second ago, if you'll permit a little bit of digression, is one of the things that's fascinating to me, all the writers we talk about who have influenced him. You mentioned Dostoevsky before. Mm-hmm. A lot of us have noticed Melville. We all talk about Faulkner. A little bit in the later novels, you see Hemingway. And I think we could probably claim two or three significant pre-Cormac authors who have had influence on Cormac. One of the things that they all do is write quite a bit and significantly in the first person. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I found very interesting about Cormac McCarthy is that although he'll have occasional passages and occasional use of free and direct discourse, again, that Joycean notion where all those third person will slide into first person and will slide right back out again, you don't have any single significant full length work done in the first person. 
Yeah. Everything's always done in third person, either omniscient or limited omniscient. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I don't have a, a definitive kind of reason why that necessarily would be the case. I, it's not, at some level, I think it just might boil down to what he's comfortable with. Just preference. Yeah. Just preference. At the same time, it's, it's goes without saying that McCarthy's narrative voice is so distinctive. Yes. And it, it transcends any, uh, it's almost as if, if, if he had to express himself as a particular person, and Faulkner's of course brilliant at this, but if McCarthy had to express himself as a particular person, that is in the voice of a particular person, you know, that would compromise so much right. of what he's doing. It would take away a lot of his game. Yeah, it would. And I, and I should say, you do see kind of between chapters or many chapters in Child of God, Mm-hmm. where some of the characters do talk about Lester right. from an outside view of what he's like yeah. and the way they see him. You do get my, you know, and a little bit reminiscent of Azalea dying, I think. Yeah. That, and I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, in fact, for that matter, many people criticized Faulkner and he had a lot of rejections of short stories and early novels because they'd say a nine-year-old can't speak that way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. right. Uh, and in some of his books where he'll have very young characters or, for that matter, anyone hold forth in that Faulknerian language in a way they do. In a yeah. third person, you don't run into that as much. That's true. So other than Blood Meridian, where else do you see Melville's influences showing up? Well, it's all over. I think that if I were to really note it and say, where is the second work that I see it operating? I would say probably Sutri. Uh, and when I when I say that, if you think of, of Sutri and the idea that... First of all, that, that beautiful concluding paragraph with the hounds that tire not, right? right. That sense of, of sublime foreboding, you know, is just all over Melville, uh, all over Ishmael's experience in the ocean, but all over uh, Pierre and the ambiguities, but also and more particularly, this notion of the human consciousness in existential isolation, mm. the idea that there is one Sutri and one Sutri only after that that powerful uh, disease evoked or the dream, right? The typhoid-inspired dream. The fever dream when he's up in the... Fever dream, right. 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 Yeah, that idea of the individual and existential isolation, right? In a sense, that's what Melville's all about, right? His characters are always these isolados. And the idea is it doesn't matter how densely you find yourself in community, you still have to deal with that with that notion or with that that experience. You know, you can never enter into the consciousness of another, no matter how close you are to them, yes. how much you love them. Right? You are you are yourself, and I think that that's Sutri captures that. And I don't know that that's a direct Melvillian influence, but it's certainly a parallel. So we do see these thematic elements that compare across the novels. You're talking about the deep philosophical inquiry that comes out of romantic tradition. And I guess for for listeners who have not necessarily had to pay a whole lot of attention to this stuff in school, if they were to go back and look at how Wordsworth and Goethe and Coleridge and Blake grapple with nature and, mm-hmm. and the mysteries of human life and philosophy, and then we kind of parse it and spin it through 
Hegel and Kierkegaard and Kant and bring it back into literature through Emerson and Thoreau. That's, a, that's the American romanticism of which Melville is, is heir, been influenced by um, Hawthorne and Emerson to a degree and then moving forward. So we see how mm-hmm. very much this philosophical inquiry takes place in Blood Meridian and Sutri, and I would say The Crossing as well. Absolutely. And again, though, that notion of isolation throughout Right. All the novels. Well, and the thing about The Crossing, I'm glad you brought that up, Scott, because The Crossing, one of the things you mentioned about, about Melville, which is absolutely true, uh, and true of McCarthy as well, is this idea that one of the reasons that Melville struggled is that there was a certain disregard of the reader in terms of genre. That's huh. true in Moby Dick, but it's also true in Mardee. It's true of uh, in Clarell uh, and in the Piazza Tales, his collection of short stories. And that disregard of the reader has to do with the idea that you go into a reading experience with a certain set of expectations, whether you're going in and you're going to talk about you you, exp- you and I, right? We may sit down and decide to read a novel, or we may sit down and decide to read a work of literary criticism. And we're going to get a little bit irritated if the literary criticism turns into a novel or the novel turns into literary criticism, right? We have genre expectations every time we sit down to read. Yes. Well, Melville in particular decides to sort of disregard those kinds of things. And in, in that context, we see in the cross, and in doing so, he's calling attention to fiction as fiction. Yes. Well, that's, of course, the entire theme of the crossing, huh. right? That we exist within these fictions and our life derives its meaning from not only the recognition of the tale as tale, but the observance of the tale through the witness. All the dream narratives that Chip Arnold right. has written about, and then the coda, which of yes. Cities of the Plain, right. which is really, truly more the epilogue to the crossing than right. Border Trilogy as a whole as well. So I think there's a comparison to be made there, particularly in terms of genre with an, an overall form, because he, you know, McCarthy is really sort of calling attention yes. to himself as the teller of the tale. And Melville is always doing that. And that is something that Melville starts to initiate with his metafictional techniques in the 19th century, which is almost putting too many too many prefixes together, but almost proto-postmodern. Well, you, you certainly cannot read Bartleby the Scrivener and not read it metafictionally. Right. It's like yeah. reading Turn to Screw by James and not reading it with yeah. psychology exactly. in mind and realizing, right. you know, his brother's one of the guys who brings so much of that stuff to the forefront in the United States. The poor scripts and all that. Yeah. So if we move away from the thematics for a second, and of course, when we think of isolated characters, I don't know if I see it as much in Orchard Keeper, but it's in Outer Dark, which is all about isolation. It's in Child of God. It's in Sutri. It's in The Gardener's Son. It's in Blood Meridian. And it's in All the Pretty Horses, the way that at first, you know, John Grady has his partner, but then Rollins has to leave and he's on his own. It's in Billy Parham's constant wanderings and the crossing is back and forth crossings and loss of his brother. It's in the way nothing works out in cities of the plain. And of course, the road, we have community of two and in no country for old men. We do have some community, but it feels like it's all setting the stage for it all to fall apart. So I think that shows up. That thematic through line is there. But what I started to say at the outset here, if we put aside then the, these Melvillian themes that are appearing. What about the aesthetics? Because I think that's probably what most of us think about is in terms of, I don't know, voice, narrative style, what he's pulling out of Melville, or at least how his work 
if it doesn't mirror Melville, how it occasionally rhymes with Melville. Well, first of all, let me let me say that I listened to your podcast on the Great American Novel on Moby Dick and found it very illuminating. Thank you. And one of the things that you and Kirk said about Moby Dick was the idea that Melville could sort of take certain liberties with the language that many modern authors can't take. They're, they're just, just sort of not permitted by the aesthetic criteria, I suppose, at the time. But the exception to that might be McCarthy. I was thinking that very thing as, as Kirk spoke about that. I was thinking McCarthy is. And I think the way McCarthy did that is because he came in through the Southern tradition and he had Faulkner there laying down a little bit of trail ahead of him. Yeah. And so people didn't judge him. For, and he's very lucky, as Diane Luce has talked about, in that his first editor is Faulkner's last editor. Right. And that's very important to his career. That's exactly true, because the thing of it is that what Melville and McCarthy do is they take radical risks with the language. Yes. And those risks are not in the direction of something wholly new but an embrace and a rearticulation of the tradition itself, right? So we know yes. that, that Melville was encountering Shakespeare for really the first time shortly before he wrote Moby Dick. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, he was echoing those, those Shakespearean and biblical Jacobian rhythms explicitly, right? And of course, we know that, that that's precisely what McCarthy does. And you just don't expect that of any of his contemporaries. And you don't find it in any of his contemporaries. No, you really don't. And it's a risk that, that he's willing to take that I think is just, it's among the many payoffs in reading McCarthy, it's that payoff. It's that sense of how can the old be rearticulated in a context? I mean, how can we use a biblical rhetoric to describe an apocalypse or an attack of Comanches? Right. Right. That's just not something that contemporary writers no. feel comfortable necessarily doing, except for McCarthy. Well, they're writing for their reading public because they want to get published. And I think if we're thinking of authors who mostly paid attention to their muse and not to the idea of finding an agent, finding a publisher and getting the book sold and having a movie adaptation, you're pretty hard pressed to think beyond Melville, although, of course, there were not so many movie adaptations in 1851, but you right. kind of have stepping stones of Melville and then Faulkner in the first half of his career. Right at the very end, Faulkner's kind of writing Faulkner. You know, you think about yeah. a fable in some of those books, um, the Reavers. Yeah. Right. And then McCarthy. It's hard to think of anyone who's paid less attention to the trying to please the public and an agent, which he's for a long time, I guess, didn't have. And then he finally has had to have one. Dan McCarthy, he writes to please McCarthy in, in hopes that we're along for the ride, and which is why I think so many books have been such staggeringly significant works of genius. I agree with that. And, you know, to McCarthy's credit in, in one sense, you know, gives us the wrong impression in the Oprah interview. He sort of casually says, you know, if you like it, fine. If you don't like it, that's fine, too. I'm okay with that. But I've spent some time in the archives in San Marcos and reading through some of the letters. and. McCarthy's making that sacrifice mm. and at the same time saying, oh my gosh, how am I going to make money? Diane Luce talks about that a lot in, in her work, in her archival work. Yes, she does. So he knows, I mean, he's, he's not just casually eating beans or whatever, however it is that he's living throughout his youth and early middle age. He's, you know, he's generally struggling at least at some level. He, he knows Steve, but he's, but he's not willing to compromise because yeah. 
Exactly. What other writer who's been that hard up for cash and sales and has so much critical respect and pre all the pretty horses, so little in the way of sales, has not taken the easy academic route, do some book signings, do a semester as a visiting writer, all those things to earn a salary for a year or two before you have to move on. Robert Frost made a career out of it. Right. So many other significant Faulkner went and did it at University of Virginia for two to three years there, right? Toward the end. So and it's also true that McCarthy could have applied his writing skills and wrote wrote differently. Right. Uh, and and chose fundamentally chose not to do that. Or chose to write screenplays to make money. Exactly. That's but he wrote screen but his screenplays were written by Cormac McCarthy, so they didn't exactly <laughs> right. you know, fly into the director's hands until, you know, you finally get I think less Billy Bob Thornton, the Cohen brothers who actually understand right. art in a way that most Hollywood people don't or the studios interfered with what Thornton did. That's the thing is he chose, uh, he certainly had the opportunity and chose not to do that. And one might argue, some folks have argued, uh, and I'll tip my hat a little bit on this, but some folks have argued that all the pretty horses was a kind of a compromise. Well, that's a compromise. I'll take it. No kidding. As would 95% of writers in the American canon and American publishing history. Aesthetically, then we see that commitment to voice, to using those archaic usages, as you've pointed out before, to prose poetry in his writing. And even as his later day writing evolves with No Country for Old Men and with The Road, we still see a commitment to style and to just, you know, they're beautiful passages describing horrible things throughout The Road. And that is why I think it's such a beloved and popular Right. Novel. It's such a well-respected novel. It's not simply yet another apocalypse tale like Mad Max right. or science fiction novel number 4017, or even a pretty good science fiction novel like Canical for Leibowitz. It is actually something that's a true artistic achievement. Right. There's another thing that when we were discussing this a little bit, bouncing emails back and forth, you brought up, and I think it's really worth mentioning. And I'll, I'll tell you, we plan to do a whole podcast on this in the future when I can get Nell Sullivan back on. But one of the things we see with Melville that is reflected in McCarthy, and as you pointed out, it makes you think of the Hemingway story collection, Men Without Women, is that he pretty much is focused on telling the story of men. There are not a whole lot of very significant women characters, and you do get a few great ones like the Ant and All the Pretty Horses and Renthe and Outer Dark, but he definitely gives some short shrift. So, as you pointed out in our kind of pre-podcast discussion by email, isolated, male-centered environments, why do women want to read these? Why should women be interested in them? Aren't they right to say, no, thanks, I'll try this instead or that instead? Right. And, you know, and McCarthy himself, I don't know, maybe kind of derails us a little bit in the opening of you when he says that, that women are kind of a mystery. And, and okay, you know, perhaps, but isn't the real mystery gender itself? Huh. Isn't that the category that where we, we do really don't understand its boundaries, you really don't understand its confines, what makes us a man, what makes us a woman, right? So what McCarthy gives us is a, a kind of surface level male environment, right, where you have a cowboy figure, for example, in John Brady Cole, sure. right? But what's so particularly male about his mystical attachment to horses? Hmm. And so that might invite us, you know, we, we know that horse riding culture is very much uh we very you have many women 
sort of, you know, involved sure. in that kind of endeavor. And also, if you think of the road, you know, we think if we start thinking of certain kinds of gender presuppositions that can sometimes become cliches, for example, this notion of women as maternal and men as supremely rational, women as affective, these are really cliches, really, but they're also, they sure. also, they're stereotype. They also kind of resound in our culture. And you think about the man and the woman in the road. Uh, right. The woman is, you know, arguably not particularly maternal, but at the same time, she's the rational one. Right. She's the one that's making a philosophically constituted decision, given their circumstance, that it might certainly challenges the boundaries of what it means to be a woman. And the man challenges the boundaries of, of what it means what to be a man. And I don't know. I mean, while I certainly wish and hope that in those circumstances, I would be the man rather than the woman. The supposition that some have made, that is that the woman in the road is somehow weak, I would say the inverse, mm -hmm. right? I would say that she's making a very conscious choice that's born of a very sort of rational sort of consideration of circumstances that uh, stereotypically we associate with the male. There's all these ways that, that, that we can look at the maleness in his fiction and see it as a window into the whole question of, of gender. Mm. I will say that I would be very interested, Scott, in hearing what Mel would have to say about this. I know she's done a lot of work dealing with gender and, uh, and the absence of women. Right. Uh, that is Nell Sullivan for your, for your listeners. And, and Nell was on an earlier episode to talk about Outer Dark. She is, I believe, pretty indispensable to McCarthy criticism, the you know, formative work she's done with mm. uh, gender and feminist issues in McCarthy right. as well. And so I'm looking forward to when I can get her lined up for that one a few episodes or so down the road. So another thing that we might think about is Peter Joseph has been speaking to me recently about a friend of his who has translated McCarthy into Portuguese. And I know he has become not only very you know, popular in, I guess that would be Brazil and Portugal, the primary places you would buy McCarthy in Portuguese, but also I know he's he's got newfound popularity in France. We have Obviously, all the other English-speaking countries. There are many German readers of McCarthy. There are. There was a Berlin conference some years ago for on Cormac McCarthy. He's he's really become a, a worldwide phenomenon. I think in the same way that Melville's best stuff has achieved international acclaim. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, are they simply writing about American themes for American audiences? Is there something greater than that? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I think both of them fit into the canon of world literature without, I think, any particular question. And I think the idea that both authors, and I'll speak about McCarthy more specifically, have been translated into so many languages, and it's been a while, right? I mean, Beatrice Trapignon talks about this in a, in a couple of articles she wrote in the, the new volume that I edited, uh, Cormac McCarthy in Context, where she talks about those translations and international reception. And one of the things that's striking about that is that, that lest we get too preoccupied with style, lest we get too preoccupied with voice, we have to understand that, of course, no translation is perfect. No translation can give us McCarthy's style in another language. So clearly there is a lot going on in both these authors yes. that have nothing to do with just stylistics or aesthetics. And it has to do, I mean, I guess I'm just of the Melvillian and, and, and Cormacian ilk, and that is those mighty themes, uh, those grand philosophical that are, are so, so resident 
in in both of their works. And you know, we you'll you'll talk about what those themes are and have for for the past number of weeks. But we all know what they are. They're the right. big questions, right? right? The questions of God's existence, but not just God's existence. For example, what is God's nature, right? In Moby yes. Dick, right? The idea is, but why do we assume that God is good? Yeah, <laughs> right. Why, why? Why is he just this cosmic joker? Why is he? Why assume that uh, nature is good and benevolent? Exactly. And and so you know, we have. I don't know that. That I think that it's not hard to make a an argument for a metaphysical realm in MacArthur, but it is hard to definitively orient it toward the good, though I, in my work, try to. Very much. Well, you know, I think one of the problems we run into, and you see this with Hemingway studies a lot, is we tend to take the way the author presents the world in a certain book at a certain time in his life and say, this is how they see things. Yeah. So there's a sequence in The Sun Also Rises where Jake Barnes is having such a rough time because he's all in love with Brett Ashley and he's so jealous that she's had this fling of Robert Cohn and she's kind of using Jake and he, you know, he's setting her up with the Spanish bullfighter, you know, as a, as a kind of a surrogate for himself. And he feels bad about how he's been treating Robert out of his jealousy. And he says, that must be morality. It's when you feel bad later about things you've done. (laughs) <laughs> and of course, people always say all Hemingway thought morality was is if you felt bad about it later. So therefore, if you're someone doesn't feel bad about things, you can get away with anything. I said, well, that's what one character said at one point in one book. Right. I don't know if you could say that's what the author always thinks. And of course, we have the context of that novel of Jake having made quite a few pretty moral decisions, being a reliable guy, being the guy who goes to yep. church to pray for people. And he feels bad that he's acting like a jerk, whereas a lot of other people in the novel don't really care at all right. that they're acting like jerks. So I think it's always a bit more complicated than that. And that's the whole point of that quote, that it is complex. Right. And with McCarthy, I, I do think the way he sees things in Sutter and Blood Meridian and the way he sees things in Sunset Limited and the Road have evolved and changed. And I think part of that's probably due, as he's said in a few interviews, the relationship he has with his younger son. Right. That relationship, I think, changed him in a way that, and just how he hopes to see the world. So we can't see them as this kind of frozen, synchronic moment in time of this is how they are throughout the work any more than, say, the Melville of Billy Budd sees the world the same way that the Melville of Taipei sees the world. I think that is one of the most important points that can be made almost theoretically about how we respond to authors. I mean, let's not forget, I mean, we've all especially folks that are our age, perhaps, have evolved through various levels of philosophical orientation, belief, value systems, et cetera. And we know how we've changed. Right. Why then do we we fix an author? For example, Melville says at one point in time to when he's traveling to the Holy Land, he meets Hawthorne in uh, the United Kingdom, in, in, in England there. And he says in a casual comment that, Hawthorne recounts, he says, I pretty much made up my mind to be annihilated. <laughs> and you're right. I mean, so many people have said on the question of religion, Melville was an atheist then. Well, uh, he was an atheist at that moment, right? I think the Pope's been atheist for a moment. Sure. Right. But, but that, <laughs> right. that doesn't necessarily tell us what he thinks in 1873. <laughs> exactly. You know, in a beautiful, I don't know, uh, Fall morning while he's drinking coffee out on the veranda or something yeah. like that. 
And pre- that's precisely, I mean, if you'll, if you'll indulge me, I think that you're very right. I mean, we've often talked about a kind of softening in McCarthy, not just in the direction of, of violence and, and the mitigation of violence in some of the later works, but also this sense of, of the numinous huh. and the idea of metaphysical possibility, sure. of hope, if you will, emerging in some of the later works. And I'm unconvinced about exactly how that hope is constituted, whether it's entirely a metaphysical hope. But at the same time, if we we could almost look at McCarthy's trajectory in terms of these questions, like we could look at the trajectory of of the Judeo-Christian religion in the in the sort of post-Kierkegaardian sense, right? right. There is this embrace of the material as as a as maybe the metaphysical embodied. Yes. I think that's particularly going on in the road and, and always in these moments of community. I, I mean, I'm, it's everybody, one of everybody's favorite passages. The scene late in All the Pretty Horses as John Grady is coming back and he meets the Mexicans working on the, under the truck, right? And he talks about them as a, as a community right. uh, embodied. And we've also got this beautiful scene. I believe it. Yeah, it's at the end of the crossing where where Billy Parham encounters the boy, and he's given this sort of cup of water, and he watches them working right across the way. Um, there's that sense of material experience not being at all or entirely devoid of something deeper and even perhaps more transcendent. Mm-hmm. It's one thing to hearken back to what we were saying earlier about Melville's interest in making things so realistic and showing just such great detail, like in how you, you know, attack the whales and harpoon them, how you clean them, how you render the the blubber of the sperm whale into oil. There is that element in McCarthy when when he has mastered a subject, he wants he wants you to know he knows a lot about what he's talking about. And so the the great scenes in The Stonemason, the play, where he talks about masonry, and he clearly knows masonry pretty well. There are moments in many of his works, like, well, when he describes the wolf traps mm-hmm. and the crossing and the special matrices that use the the blended smell scents or scents, I guess, in a bottle that would play lay around them to bring wolves into the area. You, you can tell he's done some significant research there and he's bringing it in. He wants you to know he kind of knows his stuff. And to me, that's the only part of the counselor I really liked mm-hmm. and that felt very McCarthyan is when the, the counselor and the diamond merchant have a discussion about diamonds and it just felt very true to Cormac. So we see that other element of Melville and, and yeah. showing up in him in that way, I think. Yeah, and I think that, that, you know, there's two chapters in Moby Dick that stand out. That is the Lee Shore. And to your point, more particularly, the map maker. And that's where, in, in both those chapters, is where Melville is developing a kind of an analogy and a metaphor out of, out of a very developed scene. It's a very developed metaphor. And in the map maker... Queequeg and Ishmael are working in, to weave a map. Right. And this 
and and he's tremendously detailed. It's it's one of many incidents in, in Moby Dick where where men are at work um, in that sort of great uh, tradition of American work novels as a major theme of the novel. But he develops that into an elaborate metaphor for free will, fate, as is necessity in the Greeks, and chance, right? right. And I think that that scene in The Counselor that you're pointing to is one of McCarthy's best scenes in developing. A lot of times when he's dealing with work, it's just work, and that's evocative, and that's interesting and fascinating to see in that kind of realist context. But in that context, in The Counselor, boy, I think it's safe to call it a Melvillian moment in precisely a way that it's compared to, say, the Matt Baker chapter. And I guess we missed the most overt moment when he uses the Weaver God mm-hmm. from uh, that chapter, a discussion of God as the Weaver and mm-hmm. Moby Dick, and it comes back in Sutri in his reference. Over and over again, the Weaver God is, uh, and I'm glad you brought that up because that would have been uh, a, a significant omission, right? The idea of the weave really is fully developed metaphorically in the map maker. But then we have the scene in, in Moby Dick where Pitt, the, the young African-American, has fallen off the, 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 um, the whale boat and they leave him for a time. Right. Falls and he sinks down into the ocean and he sees God weaving out the world yes. in the form of, of, of a large sort of tapestry. But the idea in there is that the God, the weaver God weaves, but the loom itself is so loud that he can't hear the calls and the cries of his own creation. Wow. And that is, that's in a sense, the kind of divinity McCarthy is wrestling with throughout, especially when we think about this, the, the reality of violence. Yes. Why do you not hear my cry? The sort of central question or one of the central questions in McCarthy and in Melvin. Or the notion of theodicy. Exactly. Right. Why would an infinitely good God allow evil things to occur? Exactly. And that that's, you know, that unresolvable question in, in both ways, right? Because, because if we don't preserve the notion of some kind of, well, some kind of answer to that question, then, then we are at least courting nihilism. Yes. Not that that's necessarily a, you know, a bad thing. Many of us might want to do that, but many of us may not want to go that route. And then we're drawn back to the theodicy question. Yes. Well, Steve, I think we've covered many of these, these angles. So I think we'll, we'll move on to our next section of the podcast. Now, you've already answered this and you answered it twice. So it's setting, establishing precedent that when I ask people, what's your favorite McCarthy novel and why, the answer is, well, I can limit it to two or three or maybe four or five for you. So you, you did it first, and everyone's followed in your footstep mostly, though a couple have been willing to come down on one book. So since you actually listed, I think, The Road and Blood Meridian last time as the one you're most engaged by and kind of a favorite, if I recall correctly, I'll switch up the question here. Which book of his would you recommend to a new reader in McCarthy and why? Well, I've listened to all the subsequent podcasts, Scott, and and it occurs to me that I offer you a belated apology because <laughs> because there that my choice of two has proliferated uh, into into many. I'm going to try to make amends by by giving you one. Okay, that is all the pretty horses. I think that that novel captures so much of the different McCarthy's that we have encountered. I told you. Blood Meridian and The Road before, two very different novels. And yet All the Pretty Horses, I think, captures a, a sense of, of, of both of them. Uh, the 
stylized language, that beautiful first sentence about the candle flame, some of the McCarthy we were familiar with up until that point, and at the same time, that sense of, of looking at the world anew. Right. And, and I think it's accessible. Yes. Uh, in a way, it's just a good starting point for McCarthy. My own experience was that I came to reading McCarthy first when all the pretty horses came out. I'm part of that crowd. I think Stacy mentioned the same thing and uh, Stacy Peebles. Right. And then I immediately went to Blood Meridian after that, followed on with the Westerns kind of casually through the 90s and then really dove in in the late 90s to the Southern works. Uh, and I that's my trajectory. Other people can have a different trajectory, but the, but all the pretty horses really worked to hook me. I had a talk with our uh, friend and uh, someone we both know, Alan Josephs, and he said that mm -hmm. he doesn't always think it's the one he respects the most. When people ask him his favorite, he'll say Blood Meridian or The Road, but somehow All the Pretty Horses is the one he goes back to over and over and over again. Yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's the one that sort of gives you that, that sense of balance and And you, you get a sense that you're you're access, accessing an author in a way. Right. It's it just functions as a kind of um, entry point, and then you can find the Sutries and the and the Blood Meridians and the Orchard Keepers, the narratological experimentation, some of the linguistic experimentation. I think you know many of us who read literature for a living don't necessarily need that starting point, right. but at the same time, thoughtful readers who who have to do other things for a living, you know, uh, it might be helpful. And I, I think that's a fine place to start. I couldn't agree more. I often ask people, "What do you think of Joyce or Faulkner or Melville first? And depending on how they they answer, uh, you, this would usually be my, my default as well. Well, thanks again to our guest, Dr. Stephen Fry. He is professor and chair of English at California State University, Bakersfield, and president of the Cormac McCarthy Society. He's the author of Understanding Cormac McCarthy from the University of South Carolina Press and editor of the Cambridge Companion Cormac McCarthy and Cambridge uh, University Press's Cormac McCarthy in Context. His book, Unguessed Kinships, Naturalism and Geography of Hope in Cormac McCarthy, is near completion, and he is the author of the recently published novel, Dogwood Crossing, published by Bathcat Press. Steve, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks a lot, Scott, for having me. I appreciate it. And also particularly convey our thanks to your son, Thomas, Thomas Fry, who has composed, performed, and produced the music for Reading McCarthy. The views of the host and his guests do not necessarily reflect the views of their home institutions or the Cormac McCarthy Society, which is a downright dirty shame. Download and please follow us on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. If you're agreeable, it'll help us if you provide favorable reviews of these on these platforms. If you like this podcast, you might enjoy Great American Novel, a podcast examining different significant American novels in each episode. To contact us, please reach out to readingmccarthy at gmail.com. And we are so thoroughly modern, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook. <laughs>